All right, everybody, welcome. Welcome. This today this video is going to be about how Christian parents can and should can and should teach their kids apologetics. But obviously, they need help in doing this, and that's why I'm joined by Natasha Crane, who I'll introduce in just a minute. Um, but what we're going to do is talk about how you can teach your kids to think critically about faith and about Christianity and how to do it well. And there's some simple resources because it can just be overwhelming when you start trying to tackle into this area of apologetics. Like, what do I do? It's just too much stuff, too much information. So uh, Natasha Crane has broken that down really well, and she's going to be talking to us today. Natasha Crane, my guest, is a national speaker, a blogger also, who's passionate about equipping Christian parents to raise their kids with an understanding of how to make a case for and defend their faith in today's challenging world. She's the author of three apologetics books for parents, Keeping Your Kids on God's Side, Talking With Your Kids About God, and her newest book that we're going to talk about today is Talking With Your Kids About Jesus. Natasha has been featured on radio shows nationwide. She has an MBA from UCLA and a certificate in Christian apologetics from Biola University. A former marketing executive and adjunct professor, Natasha lives in Southern California with her husband and three children. And she writes at natashacrane.com, which I put your website right up on the screen there, at least the, the link to it. You can't click that, guys. You have to actually type that in somewhere. And welcome. Welcome to, uh, to my show. Hey, thanks so much, Mike. It's great to be on with you. Yeah, and uh, we, we go back a little bit. We met actually at a Rethink conference, a Stand to Reason Rethink conference, like two and a half years ago or something like that. Yeah, that yeah we were both right. speaking. That was the first time that we had gotten to talk. Yeah, or maybe it was a year and a half ago. Anyway, yeah, so uh, it's, it's really great. I've been wanting to have you on for a long time because in my view, your content and the stuff that you do is really, really needful for parents. And I have parents who ask me questions and I feel, I feel ill-equipped to help them, to equip them to deal with especially younger kids. Like teenagers to me is a little easier. 16, 17 is a lot easier. You know, I can talk on their level a little more easily than if someone's like seven or six or five or something like that. And I feel like you cover all that really well. So uh, let's Thank let's get you. into the issue for today. Um, describe in, in your in your new book, um, talking to your kids, uh, talking with your kids about Jesus. Um, describe your approach, because I think a lot of people would see your book and they would look at it and they would kind of assume it's like more devotional in nature, or maybe they would think it's a little more simplistic than it actually is. And while it's simplified, it's not simplistic. So tell us what your approach is, because I think people would be surprised when they actually opened it up and found out. Yeah, I know what you mean. If you just read the title, it sounds a little bit generic, talking with your kids about Jesus. That could mean a whole lot of things, and there's a lot we need to talk to our kids about. But the theme in all of my books, all of my writing, all of my speaking is that there are certain conversations that we really need to have with our kids today, given the specific challenges that they need to encounter from an increasingly secular world. And so each of my books has a different focus within that, but that's the theme through all of them. So my newest one, Talking With Your Kids About Jesus, focuses on 30 conversations about Jesus that our kids need to understand in today's world. And that includes both challenges from skeptics as well as misunderstandings that other Christians often have. And so there are certain things that come up in popular culture a lot that Christians sometimes think the Bible says, but the Bible doesn't actually say. And so I cover a lot of that as well. And so I have five different sections. There's a section on the identity of Jesus, teachings of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the difference that Jesus makes. And each of those sections has six chapters in it that breaks down these questions that people are asking that kids need to understand and explains them in what I hope is an easy to understand way in five, six pages each. So it's good for busy parents who are like, I know there are lots of apologetics books out there, but I don't have time to sit down and read thousands and thousands of pages of material. What's the most important stuff that I need? 
Yeah, that's what I love about it because you just get right down to business in the chapters. You just like get right to it. Here's in like five, six pages. Here is a, you know, you've surveyed a large amount of information and you've compiled it down. You've sort of like, like when I make spaghetti sauce and I want to cook that tomato sauce down until it's really condensed and flavorful. That's pretty much what you've done with these chapters. And I think you've been very uh, successful and effective in it. So I'm really glad that you've, you've done it. Thank now, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how you got started down this road of doing sort of defending the Christian faith. Uh, when you first started your blog, um, which was christianmomthoughts.com, and which you still have that website, but now you also have, you're, you're moving towards natashacrane.com, I understand. But when you first started, it was more of a devotional type blog. Why did you shift into doing apologetics stuff? Yeah, well, I started the Christian Mom Thoughts blog, which is still the the domain where I am, but natashacrane.com points to it. But I started that in 2011, so it's been almost a decade, which sounds super crazy to say out loud. I can't believe that I've been writing there. Uh, but when I started the blog, I had three kids who were three and under, and I was just feeling the need to kind of make some connections with other Christian parents. It was hard to get out of the house a lot. Uh, just It's tough having little kids that age. And so I started this blog hoping I would connect with other Christians. I was a lifelong Christian myself, but I had never even heard of the word apologetics at the time. I didn't even know what it meant. And as I started writing and people started reading my blog and sharing it on social media with their friends, I started getting skeptics who were coming to my website and they were just challenging me on all kinds of things related to Christianity. And I had believed in Jesus my whole life, but I hadn't encountered the kinds of things that I was hearing, you know, things like the Bible is just filled with errors and contradictions, and Jesus didn't even exist as a person in history, and science has disproved God, and evolution is true, therefore Christianity is not true. I mean, I just started hearing all these things, and I honestly just didn't know how to respond. And I realized my kids are growing up in this vastly different world than the one in which I grew up, and if I could not answer these questions of internet skeptics, how was I going to help my kids to understand what they were going to encounter today? And so that's what really got me started in apologetics. I started looking for answers to specific challenges that I was getting online. And I realized there's this whole world of learning how to make a case for and defend the truth of Christianity. And so I fell in love with it. I started researching more and more, read everything that I could. And then I turned my blog into a place where I was bringing this back to parents. As I was getting the challenges, I would come back and say, hey, this is the kind of stuff that people are saying today. Here's what our kids need to understand. Because even if you're not encountering it, your kids are going to encounter it. So we need to be prepared in this way to help our kids. And eventually that led to me writing the books. But it was kind of of an interesting journey because I never set out to get into apologetics for sure. I didn't even know what it was when I started blogging. Yeah, there, there really is. It's like there's this world of apologetics that um, a lot of believers just have, have no exposure to. When I first entered my own sort of study of things like apologetics, I didn't understand properly what apologetics was. Like I, I thought apologetics was discussions about uh, evolution or something. You know, I didn't really understand how deep and thoughtful and vast the the subject matter was until I went into it. And then when I did go into it to answer my own questions, I found that the, the other believers around me didn't even know how to have a conversation about the kind of things I was dealing with and I was talking about. And so, yeah, I think it's hugely important. I tried to incorporate it myself into even verse by verse teaching. I tried to incorporate apologetics into that sort of thing. I think the church needs to be aware of it. And there are some pitfalls in it and all that kind of thing, but it has a huge benefit and it's de desperately needed because the the bubble is gone, right? There's, there isn't yeah. this clean separation between uh, the world and the Christian as far as their their ways of thinking. They're, you're going to be exposed to the ways of thinking of the world in a myriad of different ways. And so we need to be able to answer these questions, not only to, to defend our own faith and affirm it to ourselves, see that it's true, but to be able to help other people come to Christ through it. So um, 
Suppose uh, somebody listening right now is a parent and they have not been through a sort of crisis moment. So they don't feel that like motivation, like, boy, I need apologetics. They're actually listening and they're kind of like, you know, why do I really need this? Like, you know, it's I, I know Christianity is true. I teach my kids it's true. Why do I need to do the kind of stuff that your book is doing? Uh, what would you say to help that person maybe get on the same page? Yeah, it, it's a great question because if someone's not motivated at all, they're going to, and they don't need it for their own faith, or at least perceive that they don't need it, they're going to feel like, yeah, I don't really need to do this. You know, I didn't need this when I was a kid. Why would my kids need it now? Uh, but I think that a lot of parents have a false sense of security in that, that they think that if my kids aren't asking questions and if they're kind of tagging along to church with minimal pro protesting and things seem to be going okay, then okay, I guess I'm in a pretty good position. But I will say that over the last few years that I've been blogging, I have a lot of parents who reach out to me through email, through comments on my blog, social media and such. I have heard over and over again from parents who say, I had no idea this was coming. My teenager, even my middle schooler just told me they don't even believe in God. And I mean, they were volunteering in church. They were going to youth group. They were doing all these things. We built a house in Mexico and this has happened. I don't even know what to do. Where do I start? And so a lot of times parents don't see it coming. But here's the thing. We know from research over the last 10 plus years that at least 60% of kids are walking away from their faith today who grew up in Christian homes. And there's no question around this. This has been looked at by multiple independent organizations who do this kind of research. There's no question of whether or not there's this youth exodus away from Christianity. The only question is, is it more like 60% or 90%? That's the kind of range we're looking at. So you might say we have a cultural crisis of faith. And for a parent to sit back and say, well, I don't have the crisis in my home right now. So, you know, thank God. Uh, I, I guess that we don't have to deal with this. It, it's incredibly naive because those kids grew up in Christian homes, just like yours and mine, and they're still walking away. And this is what the research bears out over and over. So it would be like me sitting here in Southern California saying, well, yeah, there's the coronavirus crisis that's happening in New York City, and that's really bad, and we know that that's going on, but I'm just, you know, it's not going to hit me here. So, so far, I'm going to be okay. I'm not going to do anything to prepare. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing with our kids, and how much more so we should be concerned with raising them to know and love the Lord. There's nothing that's more important for us as parents. So I think that we have to really take this seriously, understand what the research shows, and know that this is part of our role as disciplers. You know, this doesn't take us beyond what the Bible says. The Bible says we're to proactively be discipling our kids in every way, shape, and form. And even though that hasn't changed, that requires things over time, depending on the environment in which our kids are growing up. So it's not like we're doing something that's outside of what the Bible we're doing exactly what the Bible calls us to. It's mm. just that that definition takes on a different meaning within our culture when we see the specific challenges mm -hmm. and what we have to prepare them for. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in Scripture, we have examples of people doing apologetics. I mean, they're, they're doing it. They're, they're offering reasons to believe uh, in lots of places in the Scripture. In fact, that's something I've, I found encouraging. I, I try to build my apologetic around that. So I like to focus on uh, the the existence of God and the evidence for the resurrection of Christ and the messianic prophecies fulfilled by Jesus, like because these are exactly what we're talking about here in the Book of Acts, you know, or in Romans, in these different places. So what we're doing is we're 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 just copying, you know, the methods we see in the yeah. Bible, but we're applying it into an even wider variety of situations that we're dealing with that in some cases they weren't. So um, what's some of the before we get into like some of the specific ways that you train people because you're going to do some training today today is going to you're going to get some training if you're a parent you'll get some of this stuff and you'll get like a flavor of this and have some benefits but before we do that 
Um, Natasha, what's some of the positive feedback you've had from people who've written to you because they benefited from either your books or your blog? Yeah, well, I think one of the the biggest things that I hear is that parents become aware of the questions. And that's really how this started for me. I had a blog post a few years ago called 65 Apologetics Questions That Every Christian Parent Needs to Learn to Answer. And that post actually went viral. It was shared thousands and thousands of times. And people still share it today. And I realized is kind of crazy. These were just questions. This was yeah. a list of questions with no answers, not yeah. even links to answers. It was just, I had been learning about apologetics. These are the questions that I came across. And I realized at that time, wow, parents just need to know what some of these questions are first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things, that was one of the catalysts for my first book, Keeping Your Kids on God's Side. It had 40 of these biggest faith challenges. And that's what I hear a lot from parents is just, you know, okay, I have a much better understanding of what these things are because I don't necessarily encounter them in my daily life. Maybe you know, a parent isn't out there engaging in the same forums and social media areas that their kids are. And so they don't they don't encounter the same kinds of stuff. But my book has put those questions in front of parents that maybe they didn't already see, they weren't aware of. And so I think that's one of the biggest things. And then, of course, the second thing is once you know the questions, we need to be able to answer them. And so my my whole goal is for parents to understand the key points. You know, you're going to have to go to other books to get really in-depth analysis on these kinds of topics because I'm hitting them in five, six pages. But my goal is to pull up the most most important points to help parents have this big picture understanding of what we're talking about with this question. What are the the big things that we need to hit with our kids? And so I know parents have very often told me that, hey, this is easy to understand. And I appreciate that because I can get my arms around it and start to understand this and have a jumping off point for studying deeper in the areas that I want. Yeah, I love that. I, I think that this kind of work is super important. And what's great about yours is it's directed towards kids, but it's the kind of work where it's like, hey, um, this is your introduction into these issues. Here's like the nitty gritty when you're like, look, I, I just need someone who's already vetted their answers, who's already thought this through carefully, who's already sort of worked out um, and, and anticipated objections that they may have. And in addition to that, even thought of how to guide your kids in a discussion about those issues, which to me is one of the great values of the book itself. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about the content in the book. Um, so in part two of your book, it's multiple parts. There's a total of 30 questions you answer. But in part two, you have six questions related to the teachings of Jesus. It's about what Jesus taught about such and such. You know, it has six different topics. Um, why did you include those topics, those six, as opposed to what Jesus taught about something else? Yeah, so when I was ordering the book, starting with the identity of Jesus section, which really just establishes who he was and why we have good reason to believe that his teachings matter, right? Because if he is not God, then he does not have authority over our lives or the knowledge to teach us what's best for us and what we need to know. So none of the teaching stuff matters unless we first establish his identity. So that's the first section of the book. But then I had to ask myself, okay, given that we've established his identity, what are, if I'm taking six chapters here, what are the most important? teachings that we really need to focus on, again, with the theme of the book, given the challenges in today's world from both skeptics and from other Christians who are teaching some things that are or things that are not biblical. And so I, based on my own interactions on social media over time and seeing the kinds of comments that parents have, I also run several Facebook groups of parents mm -hmm. where I see comments all the time and the kinds of conversations that come up. I picked six conversations that I think everyone needs to better understand about what Jesus taught. So there are questions like, what did Jesus teach about judging others? I mean, how many times have we been on social media and you say something about something being sinful and someone comes along to tell you, hey, Jesus said, don't judge lest you be judged, right? Uh -huh. We 
get these comments all the time, but that's not exactly right. And so those are the kinds of things that I wanted to tackle here. I also have, uh, what did Jesus teach about loving others, for example? People often get mixed up or tongue-tied on this one when engaging with non-believers. Or what did Jesus teach about organized religion? So many times people say, oh, you know, it's just a relationship. It's not a religion. Mm -hmm. And so they yeah. kind of pull out this false dichotomy here. Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of questions that I wanted to focus on in that section in keeping with the overall theme. Well, let's grab uh, one or two of those and talk about it in a little more detail if we can. How about we take the topic of uh, um, loving others? How do you help kids understand what, what it means in the context of Jesus's teachings, what it means to love others, uh, what, you know, how are you helping them avoid pitfalls and make sure they understand it clearly and they can actually have a, a, a rational view of love? Yeah, this is such an important question because it's one that on the surface might seem obvious to people. I think our culture does treat it as something that should seem obvious to all people, right? Love, it's like you care about others, you want them to be happy. That's kind of the impression we get. I think overwhelmingly the definition, whether it's explicitly stated or not, that our culture uses is that love is affirming whatever someone wants for themselves. So if it makes them happy, then we want them to have that. And that is a very secular kind of view of love that we see today. And I think that most Christians would recognize that and say, yeah, that, that's not exactly consistent with a biblical worldview, but maybe have trouble articulating why. Yeah. And so that's what I'm trying to do in this chapter is to point specifically to the Bible and say, here's why we see this difference. And what that comes to is where Jesus gave, gives us the two greatest commandments. He says, number one, the greatest commandment is to love God. Number two is to love others. So the point that I try to make here it, with my own kids and that I make through the book is that when Jesus tells us that one thing is the greatest commandment, we should be listening very closely because that's going to give us context for everything else. If we love God first, then we're going to care to know him through what he has revealed about himself, what he has revealed about us, who we are, who we are in relation to him, his moral requirements. All of these things come along with loving God first. Once we love God first, then we love others given what that means. And if we love others in the context of loving God first, we're going to want them, want for them what God wants for them, which may be different than what they want for themselves. And that's where this huge difference comes in. This is the difference between a secular view of love and a biblical view of love. We want for others what God wants for them, whether or not it makes them happy in the meantime. And in a secular view of love where there is no God and everyone's their own authority, we just want for others what they want for themselves. Mm. That's where we see this clash. And I think it's really helpful for kids to see that this is a function of worldview. This isn't just, you know, my definition and someone else's definition. We can look at it logically and say, okay, if a person doesn't believe God exists, then this is going to be consistent with their worldview, that everyone's their own authority and that maybe happiness is the greatest good, if you can even call it that in a secular worldview. And that's the way that someone from that perspective is going to see it. From a Christian perspective, however, we love others within the context of God loving us and us loving God. So I think that that, that is something I come back to all the time in the book and just in how I talk with my own kids is just helping them understand logical implications of different worldviews. And that we're not even saying one's right and one's wrong. Of course, we want to get to that eventually, but we're just starting with understand, understanding that this is logically what's going on. These mm -hmm. are the differences. Yeah, so there's different things going on in, in your book. And in, in some cases, you're trying to build a case for these beliefs that we have. In other words, we have reasonable, rational, evidence-supported beliefs. That, that would be one side of it. The other side is just to have actually 
you know, consistent Christian beliefs in the first place. Yes. Because you can say I'm a Christian all you want, but you can actually be adopting, your, you know, this sort of mixed worldview where you where you, you think like the world, and then you'll find that your own opinions conflict with your other opinions about God. Uh, oh boy, I feel like I have to love this person. I'm supposed to support them and affirm them in their decisions. But wait a minute, I'm also supposed to be telling them repent or something like that, you know, and this just seems so inconsistent to me. And it's just a distorted right. view of, of, you know, what love is in the first place. Um, what I uh, what I want to remind our audience of right now, for those who are watching live, we're, we're going to take your guys' questions, but not for me though, for Natasha. If you have questions for Natasha, go ahead and put them in the live chat and we're going to answer at least a handful of those questions at the end of the stream. Go ahead and just put them in with a capital Q as you type in your questions and we'll get to as many of them as we possibly can. Um, now, let's talk about judging for a second because I think that this connects to the idea of love, but I think it's hugely important. I encountered all the time uh, not only in youth ministry, but just in general, it just comes up constantly. This is something that we always have to talk about. So you include a whole chapter on what Jesus taught about judging others. Uh, what What is your method? Like, how do you unpack this topic for kids specifically? Yeah, well, this is this is like you said. This is one of those things that comes up so often, and it that makes it just even more important for us to explicitly tackle it with our kids because we can just be guaranteed, absolutely assured that if we don't explicitly address it, they are going to soak in and absorb their ideas of what the Bible says from what they hear around them. And so we, we have to be very forthright with it. I tell the story in the in the book in this chapter about how my daughter came down one day and, you know, she was dressed in, in a way that, you know, it was didn't really match. And I said something and she was like, hey, don't judge me. And I thought, oh, wow, this is interesting because this is already, you know, she's 11 and yeah. this is already something that she's picking up at her Christian school uh, that she goes to that people are already talking about, you know, anything negative. Anytime you disagree, that's bad. You know, disagreement equals negativity equals bad. And so, you know, there are the lots of opportunities. Of <laughs> yeah, exactly. There are so many opportunities that this comes up to talk about. Yeah. Uh, but so in this chapter, I talk about how the word judge can be used in a lot of different ways. And we have to get clear on what we're talking about in the context in which we're talking about them before we can really explain it to our kids. So when most people come along and they say, hey, do not judge, Matthew 7, 1, right? Jesus says, do not judge. So don't say anything about sin or don't say anything about this doctrine that you're disagreeing with. Well, they haven't gone on to read the rest of what Jesus says there. And if you do, if you keep reading after what says, do not judge, that sounds like it's pretty black and white. But if you keep yeah. reading, that was really a prelude to a whole talk that Jesus is giving here about not judging hypocritically. Mm -hmm. You know, he he's saying that if, if you're going to judge, judge with right judgment, which he yeah. says in, in John. And this is not a case of don't judge at all. It's make sure that you look at yourself, you inspect yourself first, you look at what's in your eye before you try to take out what is in someone else's eye. And we don't want to judge when we are guilty of the same thing. So it's about hypocritical judgment, not to not judge at all. So it's very important for our kids to understand that. And specifically with that, within that context, we're talking about judging as discerning. And so I really hate the word judging in general because I do think it comes with so much baggage and it's helpful for us to use maybe some more specific terms with our kids and say, you know, let's use good discernment, for example. And we are called to discern between what's right and wrong and what is, 
biblical and what is not biblical because we want to be biblically sound and we are absolutely called not not to come together in unity just to agree with one another, but rather we are called to biblically sound theology and to be accurate in what we're presenting. So this is just really important for our kids to understand because today you're a hugely bad person according to the world if you disagree on anything. And we want to help our kids get beyond that to what the Bible actually says about it. Jesus does say to judge, but just to judge with right judgment. Mm-hmm. Where you're, 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 you're judging yourself the same way. That's effectively yes. what's happening there, which is the irony of going around telling people, don't judge, don't judge, is it requires that you're judging them yes, and not allowing them to judge you, which is exactly the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus was telling us to avoid when he said, don't judge. So in quoting, don't judge, for the most part, our world is... Um, contradicting themselves whenever yes. when they do it uh, and they do it they're being very judgmental of us for judging yes they are um <laughs> and, what and we're, what we are called to not do is to condemn another and there's a difference in that sense of condemnation where it's passing a final sentence on someone's life where only god has the authority and the right to do that and we are not condemning someone else so just because we are discerning based mm-hmm. on what the bible says what god himself mm-hmm. has revealed just because we are discerning and passing on what god says is right or wrong doesn't mean we are condemning a person and making a final judgment on their life and i think that's often yeah. misunderstood yeah exactly and galatians talks about how we need to be uh use proper judgment in the sense of finding those who are in error and then first you know considering ourselves making sure we don't have sin and the way we're, our attitudes and then lovingly and graciously trying to draw them back to truth so that our our confronting people with sin issues or, or failings or moral issues or problems is always to restore them that's the goal right. that's the heart behind it and that, that is that is an act of love back to what it means to love people right so um, now, one of your chapters, uh, you talk about the question, did Jesus really perform miracles? I find this to be a really interesting topic. I think it's something that that I think people have no idea that you can actually build an evidentiary case. You can build a step-by-step, you know, here's a reason to think he did. Here's a reason. Here's another reason. Um, can you walk us through your case for Jesus having really performed miracles? Yeah, I think this is a particularly important question to talk about with because they hear so much about Jesus's miracles at church, right? If you go to an average Sunday school lesson, it's probably going to talk about one of Jesus's miracles. Maybe that day he fed 5,000 people and another day he has turned water to wine. They're going to keep hearing about these amazing things that Jesus did or that he came back to life on Easter Mm -hmm. when we celebrate this on Easter. But how often do we think that most Sunday school teachers ask the question, why do we have reason to believe this? I mean, I, I don't think that was ever in my hundreds and hundreds of hours of church as a kid I don't think that question was ever raised and it wasn't raised in my house with my Christian family either and so this question of why should we believe this is true is really important because kids are learning about Jesus miracles all the time so the first thing that I talk about in this chapter when we're talking about miracles is that before we even look at evidence that a miracle has actually happened when it comes to Jesus and his life we have to address the fact that this is ultimately a worldview issue in terms of a starting point. And I taught my kids from a very young age, I think they were five when we started talking about this, just to remember this, if God exists, miracles are possible. If God does not exist, miracles are not possible. And this comes back to what I was saying earlier about explaining two worldviews and what the logical implications would be mm-hmm. of each of these. And this is so important because if a person hears all the evidence that Jesus performed miracle and that he was raised from the dead, they might completely just push it aside and say, well, I don't care because miracles are not possible because they don't believe that God exists in the mm-hmm. first place. So this is really, really helpful for kids to understand. If they come across someone who's just immediately saying, yeah, well, miracles aren't possible. I, a skeptic once told me through my blog, I know that 
wasn't raised from the dead because I know from science that dead people stay dead. Yeah. Okay. Well, after when I first heard that, I was like, gee, I don't even know how to respond to that. But once you start learning about these things, it's as easy as saying, okay, well, clearly this person's assuming God doesn't exist. And we get to that by giving our kids a working definition of a miracle. And there are a lot of different ways that you could do a miracle, and philosophers can debate this. But for all intents and purposes, we can explain to our kids that a miracle is, is an extraordinary event with a supernatural cause. So something beyond nature. And so if nothing beyond nature actually exists, you can't have a miracle. So if God does not exist, miracles are not possible. So all of that is just to say that before we even have a conversation about Jesus' miracles, our kids need to understand the worldview implications up front mm-hmm. and what people are assume going into it. So then in the chapter, I go beyond that point to say, okay, let's assume for a minute that miracles are at least possible given the evidence for God's existence, which I cover in my other book, Talking With Your Friends About God. Now, what can we say about whether or not a miracle has actually happened? And so from a historian's perspective, uh, there are actually quite a few different points that historians will look at and point to about the historicity of the miracle claim. So just I think I hit seven of them in that chapter, but just to hit a few highlights off the top of my head, one of them is looking back at our earliest sources about Jesus, we can see that it was always claimed, at least, that Jesus was a miracle worker. So historians are especially interested in early sources, the ones that are written closest to the time of the event that they're trying to capture, because they assume that there's less time for a legend to accrue on that. And most scholars believe that Mark was our earliest gospel. When you look at Mark, there's no question that this is an account of a miracle working Jesus. In fact, scholars have estimated that about 40% of the narrative involves a miracle in some way. So if we had seen that Mark didn't really talk about any miracles, and then over time, as more gospels are written, suddenly we see tons of miracles, we might say, yeah, this is a little bit interesting. You know, why, why do you see that development? But that's not what we see. And in addition to Mark, the earliest gospel, we have independent sources in the other gospels, as well as through the rest of the New Testament, that all point to a miracle working Jesus. So we have no existing sources that describe describe a Jesus who did not work miracles. So it's not like we have these competing ideas of who Jesus was historically that we're choosing between. We have no other examples of this. Another thing I think is really interesting as as I started studying this is that the miracle reports are so integrally related to everything that the Gospels report about Jesus that you can't really tease them apart without the narrative making Uh, not making sense anymore. And I think this is interesting because so often today, especially in progressive Christianity, you see a lot of people trying to pull Jesus out, you know, pull him out from the legends, pull him out from this miracle, supernatural stuff, and let's just take the teachings, you know, the, the good moral teachings with it. But all of this is so intertwined together that you really can't do that, just logically speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that I found interesting when I was studying this that I talk about in the chapter is the fact that there's virtually no controversy at all amongst historians, people who study this, that Jesus was doing something to draw large crowds. So we see this in every layer of writings about him, uh, that he was doing something that was causing a lot of people to come together. Now, that doesn't mean that these scholars all say he was therefore doing miracles, but something's going on here that is leading him to be known as a miracle worker specifically. That's clearly the claim from multiple early independent sources. And it's making a lot of people believe this. So we could say, well, maybe he's deceiving people, but then we have to start looking at the character and, and other questions about, you know, is this really going to fool so many people? Yeah, we can take that, so, that theory of Jesus deceiving people, um, you know, or doing like magic tricks effectively, right? And we can right. test it against the other pieces of evidence we have 
uh, you know, in, in the time period and all that. And that, that's that's what you're talking about here is we're, we're building a historical case for the legitimacy of the miracles of Jesus. So I'm sorry for interrupting you, but please go ahead. Yeah, no, and I was just going to say, and then from that we have the resurrection, which is the central miracle claim of Christianity. And it's so important to point our kids back to this because a lot of times I know from engaging with skeptics that it comes back to, well, but I've never seen, you know, God heal an amputee or I've never seen God do this or that. Those are all important questions. Those are things that we can answer. But the only question here that really makes Christianity true or untrue is whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. It's just useless. So everything hinges on the miracle of the resurrection and we actually have significant historical evidence for the resurrection, which I cover in six later chapters in the book. And I go through and just look at what are these minimal facts, you know, that, that Michael Lycona and Gary Habermas point out, what are possible explanations? And, you know, what's the, what's the best explanation that we can make mm-hmm. once we look at this, this information? So all of this together, when we look at it and we see, okay, this is the miracle that matters most. We have all this historical evidence for that miracle. And if believe that's true, then we, we have good reason to believe that all these other miracles happen, looking at the historicity of the reports, mm-hmm. all of cumulatively builds a really remarkable case. Yeah, I th- and I, th- I think it does. And I think it's important that you started by talking about God, because <clears throat> so many of the interactions I've had with non-believers online who, who do talk about these issues, um, they say that the, the real reason, or what it comes down to is the real reason why they're rejecting the evidence for miracles is because they have a belief ahead of time that miracles are so you know, unlikely that even if you have evidence for them, they're not going to believe that they happened. And so um, I remember hearing a couple different skeptics say that even if Jesus really rose from the dead, you still shouldn't believe it. I'm not kidding. I heard Bart Ehrman say that (laughs) and others. And you realize that this is this is because of a worldview assumption that's being smuggled into a discussion about evidence that's not really about evidence on their end. We're trying to make it about that evidence. So um, now let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, in that same chapter, you have a a uh, conversation guide. So after giving these sort of like list of seven reasons why we should you know that support the truthfulness of Jesus having actually performed miracles, you then have a conversation guide. Could you walk us through some of the questions that you give parents here to ask their kids so that people can understand like how do you take all this data and then process it with a with a kid? Yeah, let me just grab the book here and. Uh find this conversation guide for this chapter. So yeah, so every chapter has a conversation guide in the whole book. So there are 30 conversation guides for 30 chapters. And each one basically starts with what I call open the conversation, which is one or two questions that just get the kids thinking. And these can be used with even the youngest kids to just get them to start talking about it without it being this super intimidating kind of question. Like we're going to sit down now and talk about apologetics and it's super serious. And so for this chapter, it says, when you think of Jesus's miracles in the Bible, which are the first ones that come to mind? So easy peasy, right? It's just to get kids to think about what have they heard, you know, what is a miracle? Uh, Do you find it easy or hard to believe that Jesus's miracles happened and why? So now we're, you know, we're still within opening the conversation, but it gets kids to maybe verbalize something that they haven't verbalized before. And maybe even then the parent can share something about, you know, oh, I always wondered about Jesus walking on water. You know, how does that work? That, you know, that sounds kind of bizarre. And, Mm -hmm. you know, why, Mm -hmm. why do we believe that? So that's, that's to open the conversation. 
And then I have a section advance the conversation, which takes you deeper into questions that will help the parent after they have read their five or six pages to get it out of their heads and into conversation with their kids. So first one from this one was some people think miracles never happen. Why do you think they would say that? And what do you think they're assuming? And so a, a kid may or may not have any idea about that depending on their age. But even if they don't have any ideas around it, this is an opportunity as a parent to then kind of talk to them about the things from that chapter. And there are little tips in parentheses after each of these, uh, which would lead a parent in this case to talk about what a miracle is if you define it and what we talked about earlier, which is somebody's going to be assuming that God doesn't exist if they're assuming miracles can't happen. So it just kind of gives you a pointer in that way. And the next question is, if you were a historian who wanted to investigate whether Jesus actually performed miracles, what kinds of evidence would you look for? So it's just a way of getting kids to think about this. Mm -hmm. Okay, if I wanted to have any ideas about what happened in the past, where do I even start with that? You know, I'm not going to find a picture. There were no cameras. So what would I even be looking for? And chances are they're not going to have a lot of ideas if they haven't studied this. But then that's an opportunity, as uh, the tip here says, to go through these seven points like I was talking about before. And then finally, uh, in apply the conversation, that's the final thing in every chapter guide, conversation guide, I have a quote from a skeptic that challenges whatever was learned in that chapter, and it gives them an opportunity to respond and apply whatever they've learned. So I opened up this chapter in particular with a quote I had received on my blog one day from someone who said, why do you believe outlandish claims about a God speaking things into existence or about a man being swallowed by a fish for a few days and surviving a worldwide flood that fit all the animals in it and ate people or a story about a virgin getting pregnant? None of that makes sense. You don't have any proof that it happened, but you still think it's true. Why do you prefer to believe outlandish claims because they're religious? Sounds like Twitter. So, <laughs> sounds like my blog for many years. And so, uh, and apply the conversation, it just says, read the quote from the commenter at the beginning of the chapter. How would you respond to their question regarding Jesus' miracles? Why do you prefer to believe outlandish claims just because they're religious? Mm. So this would be something that, um, for example, if you homeschool, that could be a homeschool assignment. It could be used in youth groups for conversations. Uh, a lot of different ways to apply it. But, you know, a lot of times skeptics will come along and say, oh, you know, any Christian parent, you're teaching your kids things that, you know, they're not even learning how to think critically. That's the exact opposite of what my book is doing over and over. I bring up examples that I have received from skeptics through my blog and comments that I found in books that have been written so that kids can hear from the other side that this is what people are saying, but then have an opportunity to think about it from both sides and to be able to apply it. Yeah, I love the idea here of critical thinking. We need to critically think. We need to teach our kids how to critically think, and we have to help them apply that critical thinking to religion, to their beliefs, to the claims of Christianity, um, and and everything. We must do this. Um, now, oftentimes, in my opinion, when we do this critical thinking, what we find is that a lot of the online, and I'm saying online because that's where we're getting a lot of this stuff in our current exposure to it, but it's not only online, it's also in movies and TVs, and it's in your buddy that's sit next, sit next to you in class, it's in your college teacher, or your, your, your high school gym coach, or whatever. It's just all over the place. What they think they're doing is critical thinking and all they're doing is cynical thinking. Like that's all that's actually yeah. happening is sloganizing. Like you just believe it because it's religious. And it's like, yeah, well, that's not even remotely true. Not even a little right. bit. And so how, am I, how are we supposed to defend against that kind of cynical thinking unless we've done some of our own critical thinking? That's the uh, that's right. the idea. That's the idea. Now, there are yeah, good, good I, critical questions that you ask in the book and you also expose them to sort of the cynical side as well, helping people process that. And in that, I think it's making a more robust uh, and rational faith. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm always so surprised that there are so few people, it seems to me, at least in my experience, skeptics who do approach it from this kind of perspective of let's just understand the logical implications of each of these worldviews without attacking one, without even making claims about it, but just saying, okay, well, yes, okay, if you're a Christian, then this is what you're going to believe, and these are the implications of that, and, you know, if a Christian is saying that God exists, then miracles are possible, then they would be looking at this kind of evidence in this way. It's so unusual to encounter someone looking at from that perspective rather than just like I read that comment from the beginning of the chapter of just attacking, attacking, attacking. And so I'm always encouraging parents to come back to this idea of always help your kids to understand the worldview level first. And then you can talk about, well, why would we have good reason to adhere to one worldview or another? So here's another example of something that's it's somewhere a mix between critical thinking and cynical thinking, somewhere in between the two. And it is um, the idea, and this connects to your discussion on miracles, it's the idea that, well, people back then were just gullible. They believed all kinds of wacky, weird things. And so they got suckered into thinking Jesus had done these miracles very easily. They very easily, you know, believed gullibly that Jesus had performed miracles. After all, they thought all kinds of other weird stuff. So you have a whole chapter on this. After your chapter on miracles, you have a chapter on this question. Um, you know, did they believe it because they were gullible? And and could you give us like a summary of how you would respond to that? Yeah, you know, this was a, a chapter I really loved writing because it's something I encountered quite a bit when I was blogging on these subjects. And yet I don't remember seeing it tackled in a popular level apologetics book. It's just not something that you see frequently talked about. So I was excited to write about this. And one, uh, one atheist, well-known atheist who has written about this is Richard Carrier. He's a historian. And uh, he wrote this article, or I guess it's an essay, we might call it, that's called Kooks and Quacks of the Roman Empire. And his whole case that he's made making in this is that there were so many bizarre, crazy things that were claimed back when the New Testament was being written in that time of people, you know, believing just things that we would find outlandish and crazy today, just like the commenter that I, I just read about, that we really need to reevaluate how we see the Gospels and, and the letters that are in the New Testament because we should realize, hey, this was written in the same time, that this crazy stuff was believed, this is the product of gullibility, and we need to reassess our view. So that's kind of the case that's being made. But what's interesting is that if you really read between the lines of what Carrier is saying, he is making the claim that any kind of supernatural worldview is gullible. It's not just a claim about ancient uh, claims and uh, ancient miracle reports. It's a claim about anyone mm -hmm. with a supernatural worldview. So that's not, it's important for everyone to understand, that's not any kind of argument. That's just an assertion and a label that corresponds to his own worldview. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, that's what we have to understand. But beyond that, I think the example that I use in the chapter is if we said there have been crazy medical cures throughout history, which there have been, there have been all kinds of bizarre claims about what heals and, and what can help people medically and what will make you healthy. Therefore, we have no, uh, no claims of anything that actually works and no medical cures are actually true. We would say, well, that doesn't logically follow because, you know, there have been lots of crazy medical cures that have been claimed, but that doesn't mean that none of them are actually true. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, we can't lump every supernatural worldview together just because there have been some that we would consider bizarre or crazy today. We have to evaluate each one on its own merits. So at the highest, again, worldview level, that's just a question of are there some supernatural worldviews that are better evidence than others? And then if we go to the actual miracle claims themselves, he gives all these examples of people who thought they had been healed by different gods in the Roman Empire and things like that. And once again, the answer is, okay, but what's the evidence for these claims? We have some miracles that there are 
really that there could be really good evidence for and now I'm just speaking hypothetically that anyone should agree with this this is just a logical thing there could be miracles that are well evidenced and those that aren't so the question is are the miracle claims of the New Testament well evidenced is there any good reason to believe them it doesn't make logical sense to simply lump them all together and as we just talked about there's actually quite a bit of evidence that points to them but one of the most interesting points that as I was really reading about this subject I came to uh, was from N.T. Wright's book The Resurrection of the Son of God where it talks about um, how at the time no one expected the resurrection of an individual person. So non-Jews tended to believe that no resurrection, no kind of bodily resurrection ever happened. Jewish people believed that there would be some kind of general resurrection at the end of time, but no one was expecting one person to come back to life in bodily form at that time. And so the disciples who were willing to risk suffering and dying in order to proclaim this were going against what their culture thought was possible. So that speaks very much much against this whole idea of gullibility. It doesn't necessarily mean they were right. It doesn't necessarily mean what they were proclaiming is true, but they were very, very convinced of mm -hmm. it to the point of risking their lives. Yeah. And that says a lot. Yeah. So they were, dis in other words, they were disinclined to believe it. They're and for religious reasons, yeah. actually, not just because they were anti-supernaturalists, but because of their religious beliefs, they were disinclined to believe in the resurrection of Christ. This right. was a difficult pill to swallow for them, even more so because of their religious beliefs. And then they didn't. They were reluctant. And then when they did receive it, when they did believe that Jesus had risen, they were willing to die for it, which they were not willing to die for claiming the name of Christ earlier. And so it, it all adds up and to suggest that this wasn't a, an, an error of gullibility. And there's a lot of other things that can be said about all that, but I think it's an interesting chapter people should check out. Um, I'm actually really impressed by two things. Uh, one is, is how much research you must have done to write your book. And the other is how you're able to take stuff and like your chapter on miracles is like six pages. I mean, you're able to take it and smash it down into like a really small, quick read. But how long did it take you to write this book with all the work you had to do? Well, it has been a lot of work. It's been about two years that I was working on the book and writing the chapters. And, you know, on the one hand, it might seem easy to write chapters that are really short like that compared to a giant volume that someone um, might write. But it is really challenging to condense a lot of information because each of those chapters represents, like you said, a lot of research. And mm -hmm. I really want to make sure that it never trivializes the information or oversimplifies it. I want it to be uh, simple, but I think what you said earlier, not simplistic, and that's the greatest compliment that I could have given what I was trying for because I really want to make sure that I'm never just dumbing things down that's never what I want I want this to be a thoughtful guide for parents yes yes it is not it's it's it might be for parents to help their kids but it's not kitty if I can put it that yes. way it yes is, it is thoughtful it's going to be challenging but the parent will be equipped with the content to be able to help their uh, their kid. And I honestly, I think that a lot of parents are gonna pick this book up, are gonna find that their own faith is really radically impacted by the content that you've got in here as well. And um, there's a lot more you've got actually that we could talk about, but because of how long we've, we've gone on these other questions, I kind of wanted to move to the questions from the audience. Is, there, is that okay with you? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so uh, we have a bunch of questions here. These are Christian parent questions. <laughs> and so that's what AJ labeled them for me. So now <laughs> we just want to make sure that we got questions for you specifically. So <laughs> For the right guest, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so first last says, what advice uh, would you give to parents when speaking with the friends of your children? For speaking with the friends of your children? Well, I, I, I imagine in the context of sharing Christ with them. Yeah, that kind of thing. 
Yeah. Well, that that's a, a tricky thing because it totally depends on, you know, where that child's coming from. Or, you know, are we talking to a friend who doesn't believe in God at all? Or are we talking to a friend who comes from a hostile family? Uh, you know, all of those things are going to come into play. So it's really hard to answer that question, I think. But the, the first thing I would say for anyone in any context is to just ask questions so that you do understand where someone's coming from. And that goes, you know, whether you're talking to your neighbor or your kid's friend or a teacher, whatever the case may be is to ask really good questions and to understand, you know, where they're coming from and what do they believe in a non kind of intimidating way, because it, depending on the age of that child, you know, they're very likely to go back and tell their parents, hey, you know, Mrs. Uh, Smith over here, she's asking me a lot of questions about God, which can then impact your kid's relationship with that friend if the family is very hostile. And so I think that from that perspective, you have to be careful with it by asking some questions just to, you know, d does your family ever, you know, go to church or, uh, you know, it, what you're comfortable with, basically, within how close that relationship is. It's hard to throw yeah. out questions on the spot right now, um, not knowing what that situation is, yeah. but just understanding better where they're coming from so that you can, you know, probably maybe talk to your own kids about having that conversation because it's a little weird as the parent to try to have conversations with that kid rather than maybe yeah. your child being able to kind of meet them at that same level. So that makes mm -hmm. a great opportunity, though, for you with your own kids to have some of those conversations about, you know, how they can reach their friend. I like that idea of sort of helping your kids to have those conversations with them. And then, you know, maybe maybe our, maybe the job of parents would be more to reach out to the other parent and, and talk with them um, because you don't want stuff coming back secondhand as though you were you were like trying to sneakily change their opinions about right. deeply important issues without the knowledge of the, the parent. So it might be better just to go at the parent with these questions and then, uh, and then see how things go from there. I don't know what you'd think about that, but my two yeah, cents. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Okay, we have a question here from Josh Pork Sandwich, who uh, love, you gotta <laughs> love YouTube usernames. Uh, he says, uh, "How to get? How do you get teens engaged when they're in their PJs and half asleep, looking at the live church service? It's a battle and a lot of anger going on." Yeah. Well, okay. So looking at the live church service, this is kind of a coronavirus specific situation. Yeah. Um, and I will just be completely honest. It has been a challenge in our house also to get the kids to want to watch the live stream of church. Mm. Uh, you know, some kids yeah. might initially, I think maybe the first time the kids were like, oh, cool, we get to just be in our jammies. But by the next time they're like, oh my gosh, we have to you know sit and watch the church again from home. So what we've been doing uh, is alternating a bit. And so we would, we watch the church service one week, but then the next week we did our family Bible study, which our kids do engage with much more um, because they like to learn. And so um, this is, they feel like they learn more. We've obviously had all these conversations about church. It's not just about learning. It's about worship. It's about being with other believers. Um, but finding where your kids are in terms of, you know, they will at least do this. And maybe that seems very minimal at this point because you have a teenager who's just there and their jammies not wanting to do anything is half asleep. But find an optimal time of day also to do it if they're super tired in the morning and you're trying to force them to you know watch the live stream maybe you set a good example by you and your spouse um i guess that this was a, a josh pork sandwich was that the name okay so you and your wife <laughs> uh, maybe you set the example by watching the church service so your kids can see hey this is important enough that mom and dad are actually watching this but maybe the time is better later in the day and you even let your kids know hey let, let's make a concession i know that things are tough right now um how about we do four o'clock 
this afternoon. And one of the things we found as a family that helps a lot is to put a time around it because kids are more willing to sit down and listen for a specified amount of time. So we'll say it's half hour Bible study time. And they all know, and they'll call us out when it's the half an hour, and that's fine. But yeah. we know that we have their attention for that amount of time. And so we'll do the Bible study with them. Maybe depending on where your kids are, you know, maybe they're younger, maybe it's just a devotional that you replace with the full church service. I guess what I'm saying is that in this time, there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of changes, and mm -hmm. we have been very flexible with what we're doing with the kids to kind of tailor it to what they're going to embrace, even if it's very small. So I would just say, maybe talk to your kid and think about, okay, well, what can we do? Because in our family, we're going to talk about the Lord, we're going to worship, we're going to talk about these things. I get it if you don't want to watch the whole live stream of the church. We're going to as parents, maybe as a family, we're going to do it every other week. But what would be better for you in the meantime, and then turn it over to them, we're going to do something you help me decide what hmm. I like that having conversations. What do you know? Um, <laughs> all right, so we have a question from Molly Corston, who says, um, how can we use scripture to guide and instruct our children in the context of discipline? without them feeling shamed and potentially growing resentful of it, which almost seems to me more like a broader question about discipline in general, because that same pitfall would exist, whether it has religious connotations or not. Uh, but what, what, you know, and we're just asking Natasha this off the top of her head. She's not saying she's the guru of all parenting or anything, but do you have any thoughts or advice for, uh, for Mally? <laughs> Yeah, definitely not a guru of parenting. I can share what some of the things that I found in that. And I actually very much understand where you're coming from in terms of wanting to make sure there's no resentment because kids already naturally resent when we're disciplining them, right? So when you're, when you're like, okay, you need to be more respectful in your attitude right now. Mm -hmm. If you add on to that, you need to be more respectful of your attitude right now because God says so that can over time turn their resentment of authority in general to their resentment of God. Mm -hmm. And so I have noticed this uh, as well in terms of it being a fine line and not constantly wanting to beat them over the head with scripture and coming back to it because I don't necessarily want them to associate, hey, I feel negative right now because I'm being disciplined with the Bible. So that is a, uh, that is a challenge. And so I have kind of uh, I guess on my day-to-day -day basis of discipline, I don't directly bring scripture into it at that time for that reason, because I think mm -hmm. it can have this negative uh, connotation. And I know other parents would handle this differently. So like Mike said, I'm not, you know, saying I'm a guru. This is how I've approached it though, yeah. with the same concern yeah. in mind. But then in the less heated moments, when we're not talking about the discipline, we can have conversations about the authority of God and how God has commanded us to honor our mother and father and what that means that we have an authority over our lives and that he has delegated authority over their lives uh, to us as parents. Mm -hmm. And we have kind of the structure and why we make decisions. That's the other thing. I often bring in the whys to things. So if my kids want to know, well, why can't we do this? And they ask perfect timing because I'm going to let them know the biblical reasoning behind it because this is what God has said and this is how I think that this applies to our lives. So whenever your kids ask why, boom, that's a great opportunity to explain why. But I tend to stay out of a tying every behavioral correction to the Bible so that it doesn't take on that negative tone. I like that. I think that's smart. Yeah, because just imagine from your kid's perspective, is it every time I hear about God, it's because I'm yeah. doing something you don't like? 
right? Yeah. <laughs> that's every time. Exactly. That, exactly. You, know, that, you see that so often in skeptics comments too. They say, you know, I just grew up and I had, you know, this idea that, you know, there was this guy over, over me all the time. Every time I did something wrong or bad, you know, there's yeah. God. And it's like, wow, that's, hmm. that's so much pressure. And that's, that's not what our view of God should be. But I think it, it comes in that way. If most of what parents are talking about when it comes to God is through disciplinary action. Yeah. Now I, I grew up in a, in a, a home that was not Christian in values or, or practices. And so the word God never came up, um, really. So I don't really know. I can't speak as though I know what that experience is like to feel like I feel oppressed by religion or something like that. I, to me, I was rescued when I came to Christ <laughs> and found the truth of Christ. I was rescued by it. And my behavior improved beyond what anybody was asking me to do. But that was just because of the work of God in my life. Um, but so it's so it's weird to me because I hear complaints like that. And I'm like, what, you, what world are you living in? You think God's all <laughs> oppressive? And I'm like, he's freeing us. But obviously not everyone feels that way. Um, okay, That's a oh, really I, good topic for like a broadcast. Have you done a show on that? No, I haven't. Mm -mm, I don't think so. No. You yeah, should absolutely do that about, you know, God bringing freedom versus uh, kind of this like crushing restriction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because there's so many there's so many skeptics that I've heard say that over the years, like mm -hmm. I'm free, you know, I'm not a Christian anymore and I don't have God yeah. hanging over my head. So it's interesting that you bring that perspective. I think you should do that one. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of the scene in Pinocchio, which I don't even recommend people watch that movie. I watched it this year, earlier this year, and me and my wife, or it was the last year, me and my wife were like, this movie's kind of bad. Like, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it recently, but... but no. uh, Jiminy Cricket, I thought he was a really great, upstanding, moral guy. He's not. <laughs> He's not. <laughs> but there's this scene where, where they think they're going into freedom, and really they end up on, like, the Donkey Island or something like that, and they're, like, turning into in, into uh, beasts of burden. They're becoming slaves because of their sin. And it really is. It, it's, it's the attempt to achieve liberty that leads them into bondage. And I think that's a wonderfully accurate parable of what sin does. Mm. Um, we think it's liberty, but it's bondage. And we celebrate while we turn into hee-haw donkeys. Okay, this is a tweet. <laughs> uh, I tweeted out that I was going to have you on. We're going to talk about this topic of, of uh, training your kids. And this was a tweet we got from a non-believer. Oh, no. Oh, hey, by the way, subscribe. <laughs> I clicked the wrong button, but don't forget to subscribe. <laughs> there you go. Click that bell icon. Anyway, this is the tweet from uh, Josh Moore uh, at Dread Penguin. And I told him I was going to be having you answer this tweet. He responded to us doing this by saying, Childhood indoctrination. Get them while they're too young to have critical thinking skills. Now, this is, of course, uh, epic cynicism, in my opinion. But how do you answer, you know, someone who's coming from this perspective? Like, what would you say to Josh? Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've heard this one over and over and over from the last few years because an apologist focused on what we're teaching our kids. This is a favorite complaint that comes from a, a lot of skeptics is, hey, you're just indoctrinating your kids. And unfortunately, I actually hear a lot of Christians respond to something like this, and they're well-meaning about it, but they say, you're right, I am indoctrinating my kids, and I'm proud of it. I'm always going to give them good doctrine. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about the word indoctrination. So just dictionary definition, basic definitions here, is indoctrination is teaching someone to uncritically accept certain ideas and not expose them to any other ways of thinking. So am I indoctrinating my kids? Are Christians indoctrinating, my, are Christians indoctrinating their kids? Well, it depends on the family. You could find a Christian family that is indoctrinating their kids because they're only teaching their kids about Christianity. They're not exposing them to other ideas and they're teaching them, hey, this is the only thing you're allowed to hear. That's indoctrination. I cannot speak for any individual household as to whether or not they're indoctrinating their kids. But in the same way, an atheist family can indoctrinate their kids into a secular way of thinking and an atheistic worldview and all the logical uh, implications that come with that. 
And so an atheist family can indoctrinate their kids just as much. The bottom line on this is that indoctrination is a problem with how you teach someone something, and it's not inherently related to any particular belief system. This is so important to understand. It's not what you're teaching. It's how you're teaching it. And I think we've talked about quite a bit in in this in this um, video that I bring up all kinds of challenges to Christianity in the book. In fact, the theme across all of my books is to expose parents and expose kids to all these challenges so that they can think about them, so that they can learn to think critically about everything that they're hearing. So uh, a lot of times people assume critical thinking means that you have come to one particular conclusion, but that's sort of the opposite of critical thinking. We're talking about a process here and having kids understand what people believe, why they believe it, and how do we evaluate these things. So am I indoctrinating my kids? I personally know I'm not because I'm exposing them to lots of other ideas, but I cannot speak for any individual household. Mm -hmm. Good answer. I like it. I, I don't have anything else to add. <laughs> so that, that, is, that is so accurate. You're even great distinctions. Great distinctions. I think it just, if you read between the lines, it comes down to a bias against religious beliefs, which is because of atheist indoctrination. I think this that a, a, a tweet like that is a result of indoctrination, just like don't judge me is a result of using hypocritical judgment. Um, same kind of thing. So. Anyway, it may seem harsh, but it's true. So I said it anyway. All right, we have a question here for you. Um, let's see. Uh, I, I skipped around a bit, so I, I didn't mean to do that. I apologize if I'm missing any important questions here. Um, Geert Middleman, he says he's a father of a of, of two, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. Uh, looking at my own youth, how do you teach to practice this in humbleness and with gentleness instead of arrogance, which is a pitfall of knowing answers? So the concern there, and this is a, probably a healthy concern, is that that we would, you know, because we're offering what we believe is true, and it is true, obviously. It's if I believe it's true, I think it's true. It's true. But how do we keep from becoming arrogant in our presentation of those truths to um, to our students and our kids? Yeah, that is a good question. And I think that a lot of times people assume that apologetics is arrogant in some way because it can be presented really poorly. And unfortunately, there are uh, quite a few examples of that. But I would say that knowing answers doesn't have any um, inherent tie to arrogance. And I think even the way that the question was uh, worded sounded a little bit like, you know, the arrogance of knowing answers. And I feel like in our kind of postmodern world that this is something that people start believing that if you're ever going to claim to have some kind of knowledge that that in and of itself is arrogant. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to first step back from that and say, hey, we can claim to have a knowledge of what is true without that in and of itself being arrogant. Mm -hmm. And when we present that truth with the gentleness and respect, as we're called to in 1 Peter 3.15, then there is nothing that is bad about that. So teaching our young kids that they're is truth, that in fact truth exists, and that we can pursue truth, that it's knowable. These are wonderful things that even the youngest kids can understand, and there is nothing that's arrogant about that. Now, of course, if you're talking about people who have different views and in a poor, condescending way, that's a whole other thing, but there's nothing about apologetics per se that would lead you to do that. And just when I talk to my own kids about what other people believe, it's always, oh, you know, it, it's always 
making sure that we're saying this is what other people believe and this is why people believe it. You know, this is why maybe someone would decide that they don't think God exists given the coronavirus and the problem of evil. We talk about that, but it's never, yeah, some people, they're just so evil and they're so bad that they believe that, you know, that God doesn't exist. And, you know, that's not how we talk about it. It's, it's staying very fact-based and that's why I like presenting the worldviews from just mm-hmm. this logical perspective. And you can start that very young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there could be, there, there could be a flaw of going the other way where you actually think because I'm undecided, I'm better than you who, yeah. who, who think you think, you know, and I'm better than you because I don't think I know. And that it could just be the arrogance of being undecided about things. And it's, so there's arrogance yeah. can afflict us on any side of this issue. And it's good to be uh, not misrepresent people and have some humility about it all. That doesn't mean we don't yeah. know something. Um, OK, this is from one of my mods, uh, Slam RN, who says, is Mrs. Crane familiar with coronavirushomeschooling.com? They send materials in the email so kids are not online all day. Uh, no, I'm not familiar with that site. Yeah. I know there are lots and lots of uh, things coming out right now to help parents. So there are tons of resources. I have found personally that engaging with a lot of parents online, and I actually did a formal survey and had about 400 parents reply to this, that a lot of parents are overwhelmed by how many resources are actually out there right now. Um, and parents are really just kind of in a mode of, okay, let's try to survive. Let's get by day to day. So uh, I have not researched all of the individual uh, activities that are out there right now. And I haven't heard of that one in particular. Cool. And neither have I. I don't know anything about it. Um, what I want to let you guys know, though, is you have, there's some of the questions I'm looking at here. And a lot of the answers to the these questions are in the book. There's a bunch of topics in here. Uh, and you can see on NatashaCrane.com on her website, you can actually scroll through and look at all of the questions that are dealt with in the book. You can get a preview of it. Questions like how to talk about hell with your kids, uh, things like that. This is These are big, important issues. And to be honest, most of us need some help trying to unpack how to deal with this stuff. And you've even worked with parents, right? Like you actually networked with parents to try these try these uh, tactics out on their kids and then give you feedback so you could adjust your strategies. Isn't that true? Yeah, I've worked with hundreds of parents over the last few years. I've had read-along groups for my books for, but before they even come out, hearing how people are using them and then adjusting from book to book of, of how those questions work out. And so, uh, especially in this most recent book, having the benefit of gotten having had so much feedback from the last two, um, I, I've used that as kind of a learning process of the kinds of questions that parents like to ask their kids and the, the progression that's used. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm I'm looking at I'm looking at the the rest of the questions here, and a lot of them are about homeschooling issues and things like that in public schools, and that's not really the focus we're having today. Um, so just just know that we have secret knowledge about all these things that we're not going to share with you, just to be mean. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, here's from Jeff Ross a question. Uh, my 12 year old absolutely loves reading the Bible with me, but my eight year old has flat out told me he doesn't believe and doesn't want me to talk to him about it. How should I deal with it? Uh, do you have, would you have any advice for Jeff uh, for his eight-year-old? Yeah, I think it's, especially for an eight-year-old, you might expect to hear that more flipped around that the 12-year-old's been exposed to more and so they come to these conclusions. But I would, just like we are talking about earlier, I would ask a lot of questions to the eight-year-old. And, you know, I would ask, well, why don't you? Why don't you believe? Or, well, you know, do you believe that God exists and you don't believe that the Bible is true? Or do you believe that God exists and, and some, another religion is true? So try to kind of tease out what exactly does the child believe? Because 
maybe he's just he or she has just heard something at school that mm-hmm. led him or her to really kind of throw things out and maybe it's something that could even be easily answered you know at eight years old there's only so much that they could really have heard about and processed so asking a lot of questions right now I think is the most important thing and going slowly so that you don't totally uh, push them away during uh, this time and I think too that um, sometimes the youngest child and I have noticed this in my my own family sometimes the youngest child feels like they get pulled along with the older ones and so sometimes they're not as engaged because they feel like they don't have the same answers or maybe they're not tracking as well maybe if your 12 year old seems to really understand these spiritual things and what the Bible's talking about gets involved with Bible study but the eight-year-old isn't necessarily following as well it might even be a defense mechanism to say well, I just don't believe all this I, I don't mm. I don't know and Uh, So I think that, you know, asking a lot of questions and then doing things individually with the eight-year-old could be really helpful. I do this in my house also with my youngest one. Uh, even though my kids are pretty close in age, there's just a difference in, in how they learn. And so whereas I might have a real deep Bible study with my uh, my 11-year-olds, with my 9-year-old, we might go and do our own simpler Bible study so that there's no level of embarrassment for any types of questions that come up. And we can have that questions, uh, the, the question and answers come up specifically on that level. So it, it's just one-on-one. So those are some of the things that, that we've done. Yeah, and I think your your book, um, talking to kids about God, is probably going to help equip that parent to have those conversations with that eight year old. Uh, yes. Get that book, check it out. I'll just show you guys real quick. I have I have pictures. I have pictures. Look, those are the books. <laughs> uh, so talking with your kids about talk with your kids about Jesus, talking with your kids about God, and then keeping your kids on God's side. These are the the three different books. The one I'd recommend for your situation, Jeff, is talking with your kids about God. Uh, check that out, look through it. And I, I can't tell you guys, it's not just me who endorses and encourages you to get this work. It's, I, I couldn't believe all the people that were endorsing your book. I mean, you've got, <laughs> you've got, I mean, you, there's a lot of names. It's so bad. I can't believe how many people are endorsing this. <laughs> <laughs> you've got, you got what Jack Hibbs, Frank Turek, J. Warner Wallace, Bobby Conway, uh, John Fuller. You have, I mean, I'm just skipping through some of the names here. Alisa Childers, uh, you, you've got a bunch of people who have a lot of uh, respect and and it means a lot that they would read this work and, and give it such glowing endorsements. And so that, I just want to say that so people will, will get it. Oh, look, you're not even there anymore. There you go. <laughs> you were just gone. I just, I just deleted you right off of the... <laughs> Thing. I'm still here. Sorry I was just lo- I was just appreciating my books. Yes, yes, the book covers that were on the screen. I just wanted the attention. Um, <laughs> all right, well, I think we're gonna we're gonna bring this to a close. But if people want more information, go to go to uh, Natasha's website, natashacrane.com. I've had it up on the image there for you to check out. But Crane, in case you're listening on podcast, it's C R A I N natashacrane.com, and you can get all our stuff there. There's a link in the video description to uh, to where you can get her book on Amazon as well if you want to get it from there. Uh, great content, good time to, to work with your kids. We've got to learn to think biblically about our faith, and th- that involves thinking. <laughs> it involves thinking critically as well. And we, we can't do this without just simple critical thinking skills applied to the foundational issues that not only we need to have as Christians, but the, the issues that our culture is sort of challenging Christianity with on a regular basis. If we get those answers, it makes our faith more confident and it increases our ability to reach other people with the gospel of Christ. And so this is very, very uh, valuable stuff. So Natasha, um, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thank you. Yeah, I think we're going to we're gonna call it. Thank you, everybody, for being there in the chat. Sorry we didn't get to everybody's questions. We never are able to, but we got to as many as we could. And maybe later this week I might have something to do with um, 
the Passover and Jesus's crucifixion, because I think there's some connections there that would really blow people's minds. So I may be doing that in a, in a couple days. We'll see if I have the time to put it together. So, all right. Take care. God bless you guys.